0: I'm Jim Juno, and this is Lights, Camera, Author, where we talk about movies, television, and everything in between. And if you like what you're watching, please subscribe to the Lights, Camera, Author YouTube channel and check out our new website at lightscameraauthor.com. When producer Ira Rosen walked into the 60 Minutes offices in June 1980, he knew he was about to enter television history. His career catapulted him to the heights of TV journalism, breaking some of the most important stories in TV news. But behind the scenes was a war room of clashing producers, anchors, and the most formidable 60 Minutes figure, legendary correspondent Mike Wallace. He joins me now to talk about his new book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes. Ira Rosen, welcome to Light Camera, Author. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, your new book... Comes out on February sixteenth. Ticking tomorrow. Clock, tomorrow, yes, a ticking clock behind the scenes at sixty minutes. I've read this book, and it is really a—it's really a wild behind-the-scenes look at at really what is the premiere of the uh, the premier news magazine on the air. Um, you got your start because of a tennis ball. So, um.
1: I was 26 years old and I was kind of bounced around in uh, newspapers. I was uh, in Fresno, I was in Long Beach, California, and um, uh, I had done a story about how easy it was to get a hold of military secrets. I was working at the time at WOR TV in New York, and I'd done this story about how easy it was to get a hold of military secrets. And in the mail, they sent these classified films. And I did an interview at the Pentagon. It was just like a great Mike Wallace uh, confrontation. And um, the a Colonel jumped in the middle and tried to short circuit it and whatever. And, and it, it, um, it didn't stop the taping, we just kept going. Anyway, we put it on TV, I forgot about it. And Don Hewitt, who's the creator of 60 Minutes was on the coffee line with the proje- film projectionists of the show. And the projectionist of the show said, you know, I saw something that was on TV last night. It was just like the stuff that we used to do. And he said, used to do? What the hell do you mean used to do? And he got, he called for the tape, got the tape. Um, and then he called and I was kind of, I was 26. I was back at home at the same um, uh, room I was in, in high school. Um, my mother was cooking, you know, stuffing me with food every night, a good Jewish mother. And suddenly the phone rang one day and it was Don Hewitt. And he, she said, uh, oh, Don Hewitt, you have a lovely wife. You're How are you? And oh, thank you. What are you doing? I'm making a kugel. Oh, I haven't had a good kugel in a long time. And so um, they having a whole conversation and he says, uh, I'd like to see if your son would be interested in being a producer on 60 Minutes. And my mother said, oh, no, thank you. He's got a good job already. Thanks for calling And hangs up. And, you know, like you kind of tune out the conversations. And so I didn't hear any of it. But then I heard he's got a good job. So I immediately said, who is that? Oh, Don Ewitt is offering you a job. How I many jobs you need? And so I immediately called Don back and Don said, hey, kid, I don't know about you, but I like your mother. So if you don't want the job, tell her it's hers. <laughs> and immediately, of course, I wanted the job. And I went down there. And with Don, it was, it was a great, you know, in and people coming in and out of the office. But the whole key to getting the job was it was a job to be Mike Wallace's producer. And uh, this is kind of a long answer to the tennis ball question. But so I, go, I, I meet with Mike, And Mike asked me probably the hardest question I'd ever been asked before, which was, I know what I can do for you. What can you do for me? And I really didn't have a good answer. And I noticed there was a tennis ball in the corner of his office. And I said, You play tennis? And he said, What's it to you? And I said, Well, I was on the Cornell tennis team. You know, and uh, Mike said to me later, he clinched the job for me because he figured if I didn't work out as a producer, he could get six months of good tennis out of me before firing me.
0: That's what struck me also is that not everybody had multiple producers. And once a year, somebody would get fired. Right. Exactly. And you, so you really had to be on your toes every every week. Every week. And there was this gruesome
1: competition. Um, It was somebody today... Said it's it kind of sounded like the Hunger Games, <laughs> 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 and, and, and I said, God, I never thought of it that way, but you're right, it, it sort of was. Um, and and you, you know, you rooted for four people, and, 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 and but you never rooted for sort of people within your team, and the animosities, you know, that was there, um, lasted for decades because of that that tension, you know, it was interesting. I, I was, fat, when I was at 60 Minutes, I wanted to do a story about Goldman Sachs. And um, I was, I remember talking to Lloyd Blankfein, who was at the time the head of Goldman Sachs. And I said, you fire 10% of the staff every year. And he said, right, it keeps the rest on their toes. But what it does is it creates these extraordinary rivalries where, you know, people want to see their, their mates fail. Um, and that was kind of what it was like a little bit in those years.
0: I like how you had, you used a term, uh, airport roulette, which you would just go you for looking for a story. Exactly. You'd go into, you can't do that nowadays, I guess, but, um, there's
1: no need to do it nowadays, but you got to remember, this was a period of time when there was no internet there. Um, we would get the newspapers delivered three days late. They would be piling up in our office on the couch. You know, some people got the LA times, some got the Chicago tribune and, um, you know, so I didn't want to compete and, and against the others. Um, so what I used to do is I'd go to the airport and I would go, I would put my credit card down and I'd say next flight out. And if the next flight out was going to Detroit, you go to Detroit. If the flight after was going to LA or more fun city like Las Vegas, mm-hmm. no, you can't, you got to go to Detroit because that was part of the karma of the chase. And then when you got to Detroit, you get all the newspapers and magazines, you go through it. And if there was an interesting story, you make a few phone calls. And if there wasn't an interesting story, what you do then is you go back to the counter and say, next flight out. And you bounce around the country, for sometimes for a few days. And by the time you got back to New York, two or three days later, you maybe
0: have one or two interesting story ideas. That's amazing. You must have racked up several frequent flyer miles. There were no that.
1: frequent flyers in those days. <sighs> yeah, You just, I know, it's what yeah. to loss. I'd be still using them.
0: I was going to ask you also, some of the stories that you uncovered, um, you were, you were uh, covering Jimmy Carter, and you asked him about why didn't you release the UFO files, and right. George H.W. George w. Bush, the original George Bush, was the reason behind that. Yeah, I mean, what happened was uh, I was doing a profile
1: on Carter, and uh, early in, in our uh, conversations, I said to Mr. President, I voted for you because you're going to say you're going to release the UFO files. And he said, I tried. I, I said, What do you mean you tried? He said, I asked the CIA director to come to my office, and I said, I want to see the UFO files. And he said, Sorry, you're not going to get them. Uh, you don't have, you're, you're a civilian, uh, you don't have access to them, you're here for a period of time. And, um, you know, you don't you can't get them. And
0: so um, this is Carter, the president of the United States that they're telling this to.
1: Right. But you have to understand this is very early on. Jimmy Carter mm-hmm. is from Georgia. You have to remember, he's not an animal of Washington. He does. He's still, you know, people accuse him of keeping track of who's playing on the White House tennis court, for example. Mm-hmm. So he didn't he didn't understand a lot of the, this. And the person who said that to him was George Bush
0: wow <laughs> it's like that but still i mean I, i'm thinking the president has access to everything which we know i guess now we know that, that that's not true
1: that's yeah they they obviously keep things you know it was a deep state that existed before the term deep state was known
0: let me ask you now mike wallace was not the easiest person to work for was he
1: well i think that's like the understatement of the day <laughs> um, no he was um you know it, i i was 26 years old 26 27 28 as i'm working with him and um i i did, i was a you know in the words of chris wallace to me you were a little pisher. and um and i didn't really you know i was learning the business and you know he was really really hard on me if a story wasn't working out he'd yell and scream and the thing about mike is he was a total genius at looking at a stranger and knowing exactly what button to push to, to, to get a reaction out of them. And, you know, he knew where our vulnerable points was. He probably would have made a good acupuncturist. And, <laughs> and so, you know, he, he kind of used that. And um, there was a time in LA, um, I was doing a story about school violence and the first interview didn't work out well and I'm driving down I-5. And he starts opening up my briefcase and he starts throwing papers at me. <clears throat> and it covered the windows. Um, and I couldn't see. And uh, I started chanting a Buddhist chant, Namyeho Rengeko, and um, just to keep calm. And I said, the next interview is going to be much better. Don't worry about it. We get to uh, the next interview, and it was a girl who got stabbed in school. And her mother is sitting next to her. And what Mike, excuse me, what Mike kept trying to do was he kept trying to lift her shirt to see where the wound was. And that only, uh, and the mother just kept slapping uh, Mike's hand away. And the more she slapped his hand away, the more he kept going. And the interview is going downhill really, really fast. And so what I did was I grabbed a cigarette from the cameraman and I went outside and I said, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do in my next job? And um, there were kids in the streets who were attracted to what they saw. And so they came to to me and I said, I played a hunch. I said, how many people here got stabbed in school? A couple of hands raised. How many people did the stabbing? One hand went up. So I said, great, you people go over there. And then Mike comes out. He's like looking for me. And he looked, he looked like he wanted to fire me on the spot. <laughs> so I said, I want you to interview the kids. Ask them who got stabbed in school, who did the stabbing, and follow your instincts. And sure enough, he did the interview. And when he got to the kid who did the stabbing, he said, you put a knife in someone's belly. You twisted it around. And how old are you? And he said, 15 or 16. And he said, and Mike said, 16 years old, you're nothing but a punk. And it was great TV. Afterwards, we got back in the car. We're driving up the hill to the Beverly Hills Hotel where we stayed at the time. And Mike said nothing for a few minutes. And then he finally said, you know, you saved your ass tonight. And I said, I know. (laughs) And uh, and that was it. And so he said, that was my first real test of producing that I survived.
0: I think I hear a I think I hear uh yeah. your company. Can
1: I, uh, Rory, Rory. Stop. <laughs>
0: That's okay. Jules the real movie real life hound. real life sometimes intervenes. It's great. I mean Jules the movie hand will come in here too sometimes. So wow. don't worry about that. Um you uh you know it looked like 19 I know it was 1980s not 1960s but it looked like a madman atmosphere. It was. Yeah, I mean Harry Reasoner, I mean Chain smoked coffee, Morley safer. Took naps. Um, <laughs> well, a, that and doesn't
1: make it madman. I mean, a no, lot but
0: of, snapping the but snapping the bra straps like Mike Wallace.
1: Wallace. That was Mike Wallace. Yeah, and he he. Um, it was a madman. It was it was um, it was really kind of hard to watch the abusive behavior that he did. And, and as I wrote in my book, I said, you know, if I was a 26 year old woman whose bra was strap was being snapped by Mike Wallace, I'm not sure I would have survived. Um, He, 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 um, you know, there, I think it was Morley who said, if it's in his head, it comes out of his mouth. There's no filter. Well, that also applied to, I think his behavior. If he thought something, he did it. Um, And you know, it, it was kind of wrong and, and not, and inexcusable, but you know, the show was, was soaring and doing amazing stuff and, and nobody called nobody called HR.
0: Right. And it's, it's stuff that would not fly at all nowadays. I mean, you see it. Oh, no, day. no. He'd
1: be escorted out in handcuffs or something. <laughs> um,
0: but still, I mean, Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters didn't get along either.
1: Oh, no, no, no. What happened was, it's, it was, um, so there are two different ways when, what do you do when someone's stealing your story? So at 60 minutes, if Morley would be steal, if Mike would be stealing Morley's story, um, and by the way, their offices were this far apart, mm-hmm. and um, they wouldn't talk for a year. Um, I had a situation with um, Ed, Ed Bradley, uh, where he thought I took a story from him, and he didn't talk to me for 15 years. Wow. And then finally at a friend's bachelor party, he, I said, you know, it's it's been 15 years. And he said, 15 years. I said, yeah. So he kind of said, OK. And we started talking. And um, at, so anyway, that's how it worked at 60. At ABC, uh, Barbara would try to poach Diane's stuff. And um, by the way, you know, aggressively poach mm-hmm. in kind of a backhanded, sleazy way. And uh, then they would be at the elevator. Oh, how are you? Oh, how are you? Are you going to so-and-so's party or whatever? And they'd hold, almost literally holding hands. And then when, when Diane got in the elevator, she would say, I hate that woman. She knipes me at the, in the... So which way is better? I ask you. Exactly. The way where you kind of know that, um, you know, the person screwed you and you're just not going to you're just not going to talk to him anymore or the you know the the way that diane Barber dealt with it
0: exactly i mean i I don't know which is a better way but um but mike wallace actually took a took a he poached uh an interview from his son chris rock
1: uh, chris wallace a,
0: is his son but chris rock was the interview yeah it was
1: quite amazing what happened was i was i was doing a story um on um Uh, I was doing the boxing story at the time. And um, Mike Tyson, we had been doing And and Chris told me, called me up. And Chris Wallace mainly did investigative work at the time for ABC. And uh, he got a chance to profile Chris Rock. And he was prepared to do the story um, when uh, Chris Rock canceled and said, I'm not going to do you, I'm going to do Mike Wallace. And and I, he called me up. Chris told, called me up. Chris Wallace called me up and told me this. And I said, I can't believe Mike would steal a story from you. Uh, it's ridiculous. I'm sure he doesn't know it's you. And I said, so I called Mike up. And he, and conversations never began with hello, hi, nice to meet you, what's going on. It started. It always starts with a full run. And so he called me up. I called him up, and I said are you ripping your kid off? And he said, uh, he'll get over it. I said, Mike, here's the deal. You have a choice. Either Chris will speak at your funeral or you could do the Chris Rock story. Both are not going to happen. And he paused for a moment and he said, let me get back to you, kid. And so he calls me back 15 minutes later and he said, I solved the problem. I said, how? I gave the story to Bradley. I said, Mike, you're still ripping your kid off what are you that's not solving the problem he said what are you talking about i'm not doing the story and he didn't understand that and for a period of time chris chris didn't talk to his dad
0: some of the stories that you covered um you write you write at length about um well the martin luther king assassination you found out i'm going to ask you a pointed question did james O'Reilly kill dr martin luther king
1: i think um in my mind, in my determination of it, the answer is no. Um, I believe the story we did at the time was a story on a guy named Lloyd Jowers uh, who ran the, uh, uh, a coffee house across the street from the Lorraine Motel. And um, we did a story where he admitted to being part of a larger conspiracy to kill King. Uh, and I, it's a, it's a, I go into a lot of detail in it. Um, the problem, and, and what happened was we did the story and we revealed Lloyd Jowers, and we tell his story in our piece. Um, and um, right after that, the King family meets with him, believes him, they end up having kind of a, you know, a, a quasi uh, relationship where they sue him with a wink. You know, they're not, you know, they're suing him for a dollar or something. And they, there was a judgment brought against Lloyd Jowers for the assassination of King in uh, Memphis. And um, the problem with these stories and conspiracies and assassinations is the people who are accused of carrying this out or may have carried it out are not the most reputable people in the world. They're liars. They've been lying all their life. You ask them what they had for dinner, and they'll sell chicken when they had a steak. I mean, they just do it out of habit. So the problem with Jowers is. I believe, is he told the truth at one point in time when we met with us, but he began to change his story. And when people begin to change their story, they lose their credibility. So um, my belief is that there was a conspiracy, uh, but it's also my belief that you'll never be able to prove it because the witness was not reliable.
0: I see. This brings me to my next uh, topic. And they've been in the news a lot. Uh, He's been in the news a lot for the past four years, five years. Uh, Donald Trump, you had some you had some unique access to uh, Steve Bannon. Yeah. And um, I'm just wondering, I mean, you found out that there was a post a post nuptial agreement with uh, with Melania.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I found what I found out was, um, you know, innocently at a party, I met the, the attorney and I asked, uh, what do you do? And he said, I represented uh, the Trump wives. and and I'm now representing Melania. And I said, um, but she's not divorced or she's not getting divorced. He said, well, I got her a post-up. I said, what's a post-up? He said, you know what a prenup is? I said, sure. A post-up is after you have a prenup, we renegotiate and create a post-up. And in this case, Donald called me up and said, uh, you know, I want to add another four years i am president i need a first lady if you will and i want to add another four years to the deal so he said he kind of proudly said i got her another four-year deal and got her millions more
0: it was is almost that, like negotiating a contract is that why she didn't join him immediately and in, in washington i remember she stayed in new york after yeah the i don't know one had to do with the other
1: but um you know um you know, in that world, it's a world that maybe you and I are not part of. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, they they um, they want to make sure that their uh, prenups and postnups are pretty ironclad, you know, um, because they're not going to get, um, you know, the, a, a, an equal split of the assets if, if anything happens.
0: You called uh, you called Trump ruthless in the book. Um, and I guess does anything surprise you? of what he's done recently, and specifically the January 6th?
1: Yeah, it kind of did surprise me because, um, you know, to understand Donald Trump, you have to understand the mind of a golfer. And, you know, Trump has won a lot of um, golf tournaments at his various country clubs, and uh, he's done it sometimes through intimidation, not necessarily good golf. And so... Um, but even a even a good golfer, when they lose after 18-hole match, understand that they've lost. And um, in this case, Trump never accepted it. And at first, you know, I began to think that maybe he's doing this for PR purposes, uh, trying to, you know, raise money or something along those lines. Um, but the more it, it looked like he kept doubling down and doubling down and he never would stop. Um, and. I, I, and, and, you know, and, and there was nobody, there were no uh, grownups in the room to talk him off the ledge. And at the time, what was going on is people were telling him things he kind of wanted to hear. So he surrounded himself with enablers um, like Rudy Giuliani um, and, you know, Steve Bannon became one of those people. Um, I mean, Bannon got basically fired by Trump, got thrown out of the White House he trashed um, uh, Trump's kids in a book that Michael Wolff had written. Um, and you never thought he'd have a second act. Well, what happened was Bannon kept on, he has a, he has a podcast and he kept supporting Trump on the podcast and saying the election was stolen and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, it, it, it soon became apparent that what, what Bannon was angling for was a pardon. and, um the more he kind of revealed uh, to Trump, the more Trump kind of liked him. And ultimately, as you know, Bannon did get a pardon on the last day of Trump's, uh, you know, term. Yes, he did.
0: And um, let me ask you, do you see him running again?
1: Um, no, I don't. No? Um, really? I think. Yeah, I, I kind of think it's um, people are kind of hip to the act. Um, you know, I think it's worn out. People. You know, it it was almost like um, um, people began to understand him a little bit more. And the more they understood him, the more they pulled away. And when you start seeing people like McConnell, who had been such an extraordinary supporter of the president, um, and we start seeing him pull away and some of the other Republican senators, you kind of have to think that maybe the jig is up.
0: You write a little bit about Mike Pence in the book. Uh, what Steve Bannon says was it Steve Bannon who said about the about Mike Pence uh, that he talks no, to? Rebecca God? Mercer. Rebecca Mercer, right? Okay, the conservative. Uh, con- uh, f- uh, I want to say philanthropist. Um, she gives money to uh, the conservative causes. Um, right. Do you surprise? Are you surprised he hasn't spoken out at all?
1: Yeah, I am. Um, which. Um, because, you know, he, he I definitely believe he's, a, I believe he is a religious man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe he's truly a man of faith. Um, I think that throughout the four years that he was there and he's witnessing what he saw and Trump's language and actions and all of that, um, I just couldn't imagine how he was able to sort of just keep his mouth shut through that period of time. Um, and you know, he may he may be having the ultimate tell-all book at some point in time, um, or you but or you don't know. I don't know. I mean, um, I know there Kellyanne Conway is supposedly doing a book. You know, and and supposedly who knows if it's a tell-all or not or an apology book. Um, Sarah, what's her name? Sarah Huckabee, I think. Had Sarah her Huckabee Sanders. Yes. Who who um, you know was pretty much an apology book. Um, He's got a story to tell, Pence. And, um, you know, he had to have realized that the day of the, um, you know, that they took over the Capitol, that his life was in jeopardy and the president was allowing it to happen. And that had to be a seminal moment for him where he decided to make that turn. I don't know. That's true.
0: Yeah. That's true. I mean, that is really, they like, had to be scary and yeah. uh, for everybody, and not just Pence, but everybody in there. Well, i tell you what, Ira, it's been great talking to you. I got a whole list of questions. I could fill another half hour, but I'm not going to keep you. <laughs> okay, so, But anyway, I appreciate you taking time. Ira yeah. Rosen, the book is ticking clock behind the scenes at 60 minutes. It's on sale February 16th tomorrow. Uh, we're doing this interview on February 15th. If you'd like to find out more or like to order it, go to Amazon.com or any of your brick and mortar stores. And until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been Lights, Camera, Author.